Welcome to the Tennessee Achieves podcast, dedicated to and inspired by our students who over a decade have broken cycles, conquered obstacles, overcome barriers, and exceeded expectations. In turn, our students have also inspired Tennessee Achieves, a nonprofit designed to increase the percentage of Tennessee students earning a college credential. Operating in partnership with Tennessee Promise, Tennessee Achieves works with thousands of high school students each year as they transition to and through college. We believe successful students result in thriving communities. The Tennessee Achieves podcast will share stories of students, their mentors who provided encouragement, and our countless partners who contribute to this movement each meant to leave you a bit smarter about transitioning from high school to college and a bit shrewder about navigating college. Here we go. And welcome to the second of our Tennessee Achieves podcast. We launched our podcast recently and are super excited today to share our next guest, Dr. Anthony Wise, president of Pellissippi State. I've known Anthony now for over a decade and can tell you with a great amount of certainty how committed he is to students and families, not only in East Tennessee, but across the state. He's wildly innovative in terms of trying to do what's right by students. He's also a really great friend, not only to Tennessee Achieves, but also to me. So, so excited to have him with us. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Chrissy, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Uh, I would echo a lot of the uh, those comments. I enjoy working with you for over a decade and appreciate our friendship and your commitment to st- student success, both at Pellissippi State and, and across Tennessee. Thrilled to have you. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so just start off by telling us a little bit about your story. How'd you land at Pellissippi State? Yeah, so I came to Knoxville with my wife uh, about 1993 to do my PhD at the University of Tennessee. Um, Planned to be sort of in and out. My dream at that time was to teach at a small private liberal arts college. Um, and as I was finishing up my dissertation, I had a chance to teach one semester at Pellissippi State. Um, and at that point, I didn't really think it was a place I would be a long time. But, you know, I needed to pay the bills and, um, you know, I needed to take care of my family. And our, we just had our first child uh, uh, at that time. And but over the first couple years of teaching there, I really fell in love with the mission of the community college and the students that we work with and Pellissippi State uh, in, in particular, it just seemed like a, a great place to be. Um, so I kind of set my roots down in that institution and in the work that community colleges do. I mean, I think um, they really are can be the workhorse for higher education in our country in terms of the opportunities they provide. Um, and in those early years, a lot of the focus was on sort of the access part of that mission. Um, you know, anybody can come, and that, that, that certainly appealed to me um, uh, as a new faculty member. Do you remember what the makeup was of Pellissippi? How many students? Was it mostly adults? Do you remember if you Yeah, so I want to say, and so I've been there, uh, I'm finishing up my 22nd year um, uh, this month. Uh, I want to say it was about 7,000 students, 6,800, 7,000 students or so. Um, Pretty wide uh, diversity of student population in terms of 
um, all the sort of demographics in terms of age and ethnicity and race and, and academic ability um, were in the classroom. I remember the first class I taught, I mean, this had a huge impact on me. I had a you know, 18 and 19 year old young woman who was in the class. She just graduated from high school and is in her first year or so at Mississippi State. But also in my class was her mom, who was in her mid-40s, and she was going through a divorce, and um, she needed to, to go back to school. She wanted to become a teacher so she could have a stable income for her, for her family. So it really hit me in a, in a profound way in terms of the types of students that were in my classroom, the different points they were in, in terms of their lives, and the things that they were trying to accomplish by going back to, or by coming to Pellissippi State. Yeah, it is really fascinating. I taught at Pellissippi, as you know, for a few years years and the demographic is so different from my student teaching days at the University of Tennessee. My first class, I had Norm Naylor. So I had, you know, a, a 70 plus year old student in my class and teaching political science to someone who had actually lived through the events that I had not. Um, and so I think that makes it fun, but also a challenging classroom. Would you agree? Absolutely. So I remember, you know, it was I remember teaching the history of the Vietnam War with uh, a gentleman in my class who had been um, seriously wounded in that in that conflict, and so he brought a great perspective to uh, to the class that I could never deliver a, as an instructor. And so his his presence was was very powerful. Um, but also remember things that, that that I've learned from my students over the course of the time about the importance of building community in the classroom and community at the college. I remember night classes where I would have you know sort of our adult learners who would organize study groups and kind of take care of the younger students as they were moving through. And um, so, you know, in a lot of ways, from an instructional perspective, that 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 diversity of experience can be a challenge, um, especially, you know, I was 30 years old when I started in, in the classroom and, you know, I had folks who were who had seen much more uh, than I had from a historical perspective. Um, but it also is, I think, one of the great strengths of the community college, and, and especially when you think about the work that we need to do about you know, creating access opportunities for individuals, but also um, with student success for those individuals, how that begins to change families and change communities. And that's, to me, that's one of the things that's exciting about working in this sector. I love the, the deep, rich, meaningful conversations that happen in classrooms when there's uh, various generations and perspectives. Um, and it really is um, a, a hodgepodge of diversity. And I think that's what makes community colleges really special. Yeah. And you just, so you think about, um, I think about a colleague at Pellissippi for a number of years, um, uh, Robert Boyd. I mean, he was with Dr. King at the March on Washington uh, uh, and is at the start of the, the height of the civil rights movement. So how powerful is that for students to have somebody who can speak that experience into existence in their, in their classrooms? Um, uh, and then in many cases, we find our students have, have great experience as well with um, their service to the military or the work they've done previously that they can bring into the classroom and they can share with uh, a different generation of learners. And it's just um, really powerful. What would you say, what role would you say the community college specifically plays in the argument of not everyone needs college? I feel like we've made a lot of movement in that space over the last 10 years in Tennessee, but what role would you say community college really plays in sort of demystifying this myth that not everyone needs college? Yeah, so I mean, if you look at you know the, the connection to economic studies, I mean, clearly a significant number of Tennesseans need to have some type of post-secondary 
uh, attainment if we're going to have the kind of communities we want to live in, that can have a great state economy if we're going to compete against, uh, and we're not competing just against regions uh, in, in the South and the Southeast, we're competing against communities and regions around the world. So it's, it's critical for us to have uh, an ed educated citizenry who can not only be make contributions to the community, but also has the, uh, the intellectual ca capacity to, to, to make change in the, in the work they do. So community colleges and technical colleges in the state of Tennessee play a significant role in providing those post-secondary opportunities, whether it's somebody who wants to go into HVAC. I mean, that really requires some type of post-secondary training now, and you can get that at one of the TCATs in the state. Or if somebody wants to become a welder and they can come to a place like Pellissippi State and can get that, that kind of training and education that allows them to, uh, to have a base of knowledge to build a successful career. And I think that's where the community college can play uh, a, a critical role. I think it's important, you know, I believe in education. I think it's, it's critical um, that, that, that uh, we encourage the folks who live in our communities, whether they're young people or adult learners, and take advantage of the opportunities. You know, we'll look at my own children. I mean, one of my, my oldest child chose to go sort of a traditional liberal arts four-year institution. Uh, my daughter chose to start at a community college based upon sort of where she was at the time and what she didn't really know what she wanted to do. She wanted a chance to, to try and figure some things out. So I just think the community college plays a significant role in providing uh, a, a pretty large number of opportunities, uh, but many of which are focused on building that sort of uh, skill base that communities need and, and that, uh, that, that citizenry um, skill that, that, that all of our communities need today, for sure. Yeah, college is not four-year institution no. anymore, right? And I think it's the statistic, you and I both know the statistic of if you leave high school and go directly into the workforce, you earn approximately $13,000 the first several years out of high school, which is not a family sustaining, or I would even argue an individual sustaining wage. And so I feel like community college and technical colleges both come to play in this sort of wrapping their arms around everyone to say, we'll meet you where you are. And one of the things that I've really enjoyed seeing over the course of my career um, is the change in the way education at technical colleges and community colleges um, uh, has been perceived. So, for example, 20 years ago, if you did a technical degree at one of our TCATs or a, even a technical degree at a community college, if you ultimately decided you wanted to get a bachelor's degree, you almost had to start over. Um, and that's not really the case anymore. You can really, we're, we've done a lot of good work as a state in thinking about how we ladder credentials from the TCAT to the community college to um, state uh, colleges and universities to create these ladders of opportunities. Uh, I think one of the most important things that we can do uh, as an educational system and as educators in this state is to think about the notion of lifelong learning. I mean, the reality that you can start and finish a degree in your late teens and early 20s, and that's the only education you're ever going to need uh, for the rest of your life, I think that's a, a fallacy at this point. And what we need to do is help people get uh, skills or education that are going to allow them to get started in a career, but also give them um, the ability to become lifelong learners, knowing that that they're they're going their careers are going to change, and that they can always go back and access additional uh, educational opportunities. And community colleges and technical colleges are great places to do that. Yeah, I feel like there's been even among students an evolution of mindset around the community college. Right when we first launched Knox Achieves, I didn't realize that there was sort of this 
swell of, well, you know, if you can't really make it, you go to community college. I don't think that exists very much anymore. Would you agree? Yeah, it's it's definitely changing. I, I certainly felt it when I was in the classroom uh, 20 years ago. You know, kids would be kind of like, well, I'm here because I couldn't go anywhere else or I'm here because my parents wanted me to go here. Um, uh, I think now um, in, in Tennessee and really around the country, um, folks are choosing community colleges for a lot of, of reasons. Um, you know, we've got generally small class sizes. We've got faculty whose first priority is, is instruction in the classroom. Um, our graduates tend to do very well, both in the workforce and at the transfer institutions. Um, Pellissippi State's got some things that are that are pretty unique. I mean, we encourage students to do study abroad and get engaged in some high impact practices that, that you would find anywhere. Um, so I do think community colleges are increasingly being looked at by families as, you know, maybe they aren't, uh, they're institutions of first choice that, that we ought to think about starting there. Um, you know, the conversations I've had with my own children is, look, you know, if you, if you started a community college, you can save those resources we have as a family for your bachelor's degree, your graduate work, if you, if you want to do that. And, you know, one of my kids has, has chosen to, to, to do that and has had a great experience um, uh, at, at the community college. And, um, that's exciting to see. Yeah, I love that students have options. I mean, I feel like that's the most important piece. So we've known each other for yeah. a long time now. Talk to me about when you first heard about Knox Achieves. What'd you think? Alan Edwards was president at the time. Love Alan. Yeah. He really embraced the program. Um, but you came into the president's role pretty quickly thereafter. So talk to me about your thoughts around Knox Achieves. Um, you know, I thought it was uh, an incredibly exciting idea at the time, the notion that that uh, every graduate of a Knox County High School would have an opportunity to attend a community college last dollar scholarship. Um, I liked the, some of the elements of the program that were built in, the notion of service and working with a mentor. Um, but one of the things that was, was apparent um, early on was that the work um, Knox Achieves started out doing really aligned well with the work that we were doing at Pellissippi State. So, um, you know, requiring students to do the FAFSA six or seven months before they try to enroll in the institution, uh, encouraging students to go to orientation and work with somebody through that admissions process. Those were things that we were talking about and thinking about and looking to make happen at Pellissippi State. And Knox Achieves was just a great partner in, in aligning that, that work. I mean, when I started at Pellissippi State, uh, and would have to do advising before the fall term began in August. We would be happy if hundreds of people showed up uh, in the last couple of days of registration to, to fill our classes because it, it was absolutely insane because many of them were ultimately not very, very successful. But what I loved about Knox Achieves and what carries forward today with Tennessee Achieves and Tennessee Promise is that young people that want to go to a technical college or a community college in the state of Tennessee they have to start thinking about it a year ahead of time. And I just think that that process is, is so important. They got to think about, all right, I've done my FAFSA. Do I need any additional resources? Um, you know, where am I going to, you know, what are my choices? What are my choices? You do have choices in, in, in that in that particular program. Um, I just think that's so critically important in terms of getting uh, young people in particular prepared to, to, to be ready to, to start. And of course, we've done a lot of uh, pilot programs over the course of the, the last decade or so to make sure that they're even uh, more prepared as they begin that journey. Yeah, I'm super thankful to Pellissippi. I've, I've been very open about the fact when we launched Knox Achieves, I was totally clueless about what I was doing and spent a lot of time on campus talking to financial aid and to admissions and really trying to understand the process for students. Um, and you guys were always incredibly gracious. So I do tend to always come back to Pellissippi in the pilot space. Um, so why don't, tell me about the evolution of Pellissippi. I mean, we have a joke that I like to take 
all the credit <laughs> for the numbers that you have, but the data really is incredible. Obviously, um, we play a very small role, but you've seen some really incredible success over the last decade. Yeah, so, so I think, you know, one of the things that's happened at the same time as, as Knox Achieves became Tennessee Achieves and they began to partner with Tennessee Promise um, over the course of the last, last decade is, you know, community colleges in the state of Tennessee and, and frankly nationally have, have made this pivot from being sort of primarily access oriented. I mean, when I started, we would say, you know, we'll, we'll take all comers and if, 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 if what we have works for you, that's great. Um, uh, but over the course of the last decade, we've really tried to focus not just on the access part of our mission, but the student success part of our mission as well. So thinking about what kind of supports we offer stu students, what kind of structures we have in place, um, what kind of resources we have available for them to be, be successful. So a lot of times when I talk in the community, I'll share this data. So if you go back to the year before uh, Knox Achieve started, which I think was 2008-2009 academic year, Pellis of East State was a student, uh, uh, an institution of about... Uh, 85 or 8,600 students. Um, we awarded, I think, 660 or 70 associate degrees that year and uh, three technical certificates. Um, every year since then, we've increased the number of associate degrees awarded at the institution. So we now have just under 11,000 students. Um, last year, we order, uh, awarded, I think, 1,464 associate degrees, um, probably 600 or so technical certificates. We're on pace to, to, to be even above that um, for this year. So really, the, just just that shift in focus over the course of the last decade, you know, do we have our programs aligned in the right way? And we're nobody, nowhere near means, uh, nowhere near close to being done with that, that work. But it is the focus of our work now is, yes, it's important to be able to recruit students, but it's also critically important to help students um, retain at the institution and persist and make progress towards a deg degree and ultimately complete um, because that's, you know, the worst possible outcome in higher education is, um, having uh, debt and no degree. And Tennessee's done a lot of great work on that. And of course, um, Tennessee Achieves is a great partner in that in terms of providing these opportunities. But, you know, we've, we've still got a long ways to go. We do have a lot of work to do, but still so much progress. I think when I stepped into this space across the board, not specific to Pellissippi, but across the board in Tennessee, community college graduation was around nine or 10%. And now with Tennessee Promise students, we're in the high 30s, 36%, which is really incredible growth. Still so much work to be done. But I do think the institutions have become less focused on institution and more focused on student. And I've been really um, excited to watch that evolution happen. So we recently celebrated the 10,000th student at Pellissippi, 11,766, I think, to be exact. Uh, so I, I was thrilled at the event, uh, thrilled at the number. How do you think these students are different from maybe the student who doesn't take advantage of a Tennessee Promise or maybe even a Tennessee Reconnect? You know, I think the the thing that, that I think the structure, I think one of the things that we've learned about community college students, especially as we've shifted from this access focus to, to focus on student success is the structures and supports really do matter. Um, it does matter that you have a mentor. It does matter that you have a coach now if we touch base on um, some of the other work that we're, that we're doing. It does matter that you have somebody you can reach out to and say, hey, I have this challenge. Um, because frankly, a lot of the students that we serve that are low, uh, low income or first generation, um, they're not going to seek help necessarily on their own. Um, and having that advocate 
um, really does make a make a difference. So I think those supports that we've built in and Pellissippi State's thinking about this in uh, a number of different ways and in, in partnership with Promise and Reconnect. You know, how do we create a holistic support system that allows us to really to see if we can meet all the needs that a student has? So is that related to academic preparation before they start? Is it related to, to some of the challenges our low-income students face in terms of housing and transportation and childcare and even the expense of, uh, of textbooks? Those things are critically important to the student student success picture. Um, and I, I think it's important that we address them as institutions and as partner agencies and a, a, as communities because the reality is that if we can help a student have a successful outcome and become a nurse or a welder or a maintenance technician or transfer to the university and complete a degree in logistics or engineering or uh, accounting, that doesn't just change their life. It's going to change the trajectory of the lives of their, their, their future family. And that's, that's incredibly important work. And when I think about, you know, the drive to 55, I mean, to me, that's where the, the work really is. I mean, it's, it's great that it's an, an opportunity that's available for all in Tennessee. But if we're really going to do the work, then we've got to make sure that, that, that we're successful with those students who are at, have the, the highest risk. Yeah, it's cycle breaking, right? In Absolutely. many ways, uh, it, it, that's what the work really is all about. And while to your point, we've made a lot of progress, there's still so much to do, especially for those more vulnerable student populations. I mean, our data shows, and I'm not sure exactly what the Mississippi data shows, but really the deciding factor on college completion is income, household income. Yeah. And, and that's such a huge sort of, okay, wait. So what you're telling me is it really isn't about the student. It's about what has happened for that student over the last 18 plus years, right? Completely out of the student's control in many ways. Yeah, I think uh, we had a student speaker in an event, and sometimes it's not even really a conscious choice that they're going to to stop. It's just, you know, I'm going to, you know, we had a student who talked about, you know, I started a community college 30 years ago. Um, I had a great first year. At the end of the first year, I started working more, and I thought, you know what, I just need to, I need to work more this fall, so I'm not going to go back to school this semester. And, you know, moved into a variety of different jobs and found that gap grew to be 25, 30 years out of school um, without a degree. Now, ultimately, they came back to, to Pellissippi State through Reconnect, and they're going to graduate this year. But I think a lot of our students walk away because of those economic pressures, not because they're not uh, able to the, do the work academically. And so how do we as institutions, how do we as agencies, how do we as a community uh, find ways to make it very, very difficult for them to walk away, um, make sure they understand the consequences of, uh, of doing so. So how can we provide that, that little bit of extra support? I know we've worked on it hard at, at Pellissippi State, created a student opportunity fund to try and make sure that you know, if, if you need help with some of those things that we can keep you in school until you f finish your degree. I love that student, by the way. Yeah. I thought that student was fantastic. Was. I mean, just complete home run on your part. But the thing that I walked away with was he didn't feel like he was dropping out. Yep. He was just exactly what he said. stepping so away. I. I mean, it was a huge moment for me. I, you know, you, I go to these sort of events, you go to these yep. sort of events all the time. And I don't always walk away with like, oh, that makes so much sense. But when he said like, I had convinced yeah. myself, right? I wasn't dropping out. I just wasn't returning for the following semester. Um, we got to change that uh, somehow because it is, Oftentimes for our students, I, I think for higher income students, they make school their job. And I think that's really difficult for other student populations. And so how do we create that 
to your point, holistic approach so they get what they need and they can focus on school for the time they're there. Yeah, and there's been so much work done on the first year um, of college, both at four-year institutions and um, community colleges as well. Um, but that transition point from the end of the freshman year to the start of the sophomore year is absolutely critical. I mean, we probably lose 20% of our student population at that point. And my guess is there are a lot of students like that. They don't, they don't see themselves as dropping out. They just think, you know what, I'm going to work a little more uh, in the fall semester and I'll come back in January. And the reality is it goes from January to August to January to August and they, and they never really get reengaged until well down the road. So we've got some work to do to make sure we, we keep those students engaged from freshman to sophomore year, uh, help them see how close the finish line is, um, how accessible the next transition point is either into the workforce or to a four-year university or college, um, and help them see it through to the end. I think that's a good introduction to Knox Promise, the new pilot we have. Thanks to the Haslam Family Foundation, we have generous funding to really determine if we took many of the other financial layers and added the coaching element for every student, what that means for students. How do you think that's impacted? I mean, we're only one semester in, right? But do you think that this is the next phase of work? Because for me, it feels like this is game changing and we're only a few months in. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one, I, I like the fact that the student has um, has a person, they have a coach that they can reach out to, that there's a plan for communication that, that you've put in place to make sure that those coaches have regular and consistent contact. I can see it on campus. I was walking around last week and I saw, keep, kept seeing all these signs, you know, Promise coaching se session here and there, and, and they were all over the place. And, and to me, that's taking over yeah, the campus. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing to see because I know um, from having um, barged into one of those conversations at Blunt, you know, there's great things going on there in terms of not only building a relationship with a coach, but also, you know, students get a chance to see that they're not the only person that, that's in this circumstance, that they have peers who have similar struggles and similar challenges at the institution, that there are people who care about them and want to help them uh, work their way through it. So I'm really excited about what I can see visually on campus. I'm really interested to see about what kind of impact that has on that sort of first step in terms of persistence from fall semester uh, into, uh, into the spring term and, and what that will tell us. And then, you know, for us, you know, our part of our thinking now is, and this is one of the things that's definitely changed over the course of the last decade. So it's not how then do we create a boutique program to, to replicate that? All right, so how do we take that to scale for, for all of our students? How do we make sure that every student at Pellissippi State feels like they've got some person that they can call on or some person that they have a conversation that's ongoing so that when it comes to the point where they're thinking, you know what, I, I'm just going to pass on fall semester, somebody can reach out and say, you know what, let's get back in fall semester and, and continue to move ahead and see if you can be uh, uh, make a little more progress towards your degree, um, that that's critically important for your academic success and, and you know, your, your future, future work success as well. Yeah, I think Knox Promise has been so eye-opening for me. I've been doing this work now for yeah. more than 11 years. And, you know, we have 90,000 students that we're responsible for at any given time here and a small staff. So I'm very hands-on with the program. Uh, scale has always been something that I feel like we do well here. But the depth part that Knox Promise really brings to the work has been incredible in terms of 
showing, I think, not only me, but my entire team that this is so much bigger than just, hey, we need you to go to school and do your community service and file your FAFs. I mean, we, we, we're so milestone deadline oriented here uh, and we want students to have a person. But thinking about, I mean, we've had homeless student situations three months in, homeless, multiple homeless student situations and food insecurity. And do you mind going to Walmart with me because I don't have any toiletries? I mean, it really is some heartbreaking things. And I know you guys have started a food pantry and all sorts of things at Pellissippi. Yeah, we've just, uh, this is our first semester with a new office we call the Office of Student Care and Advocacy. Um, and it's really designed to create a structure around case management support for our students on campus who have those kind of challenges that you were talking about. And we've actually doing an intake survey when students enroll uh, as new students at Pellissippi State. We're trying to get a, a sense ahead of time of what sort of economic challenges they faced uh, as opposed to finding out, you know, 12, 13, 14 weeks into the semester they've been living in their car for four or five weeks weeks that they were trying to be much more proactive and, and being much more uh, directive in terms of helping connect students with resources on campus and, and in the community. And I think, you know, like you, we've been, um, it's overwhelming to, to try and get a sense of understanding of, of how many students really do face those, those kind of challenges um, and how big a difference a, a bus pass or um, uh, resources from the food pantry or a connection with a housing resource, how critical that is. That stability is, you can't be a successful student without economic stability and really trying to make sure that we understand that and aid that and, and help our students as much as possible. Yeah, and I feel like this has been so prominent in the K-12 space, right, with free and reduced lunch. I mean, the students have been sort of accustomed to a certain level of yeah. care and support, yeah. and then it just stops. Yeah. And I think it's so important that we really take a deep dive and think about like, how does this move the needle? I mean, obviously I'm a crazy data person, but it's about the individual student, but also like, if you can do this at scale, does it produce uh, the kind of outcomes that we're hoping for in terms of, okay, Pellissippi, you're at 36% three-year graduation rate. Can we jump that another 10 plus percent by this more holistic deep dive into the person? So I'm curious to see how this all shakes out, but I'm, um, it's promising. Yeah, absolutely. We've been very encouraged so far. And, and, and like you, you know, what, you know, what are the next steps? And again, when I think about it from, from what, the state hope to accomplish with drive to 55 and, and promise and reconnect. I mean, again, it's, you know, can we look, look at ways of addressing the needs of our most economically at risk students and helping create stable middle-class families, um, generational change. Um, and it's challenging work, um, but it's critically important work. Um, and if we can, can move the, the needle, it'll be, you know, incredibly exciting to, to see those, see those results. Yeah, and utilizing the summer. I mean, we've been, yeah, yeah right. I mean, it, it would be crazy if we didn't talk about Summer Bridge piloted at Pellissippi in 2012 with 27 students, three week academic boot camp. I wish every Tennessee Promise student would go through Bridge, academic or not, just for that exposure to campus. They meet you, the college president, they meet professors who are oh so scary, but then wait, maybe not so scary. They're caring and helpful. Uh, and so, my favorite statistic around Bridge is always that 100% of them leave saying they're more confident about college. And for me, like outside of the academic, we want them to test out and, and start college at college level. But that confidence piece for me is huge. So 
Now 4,000 students have been served by this program that started at Mississippi with 27. And so thanks for that. But then now we're building a new summer program for that transition from freshman to sophomore year. You think this is going to be game changing? I mean, predictions into the future? Yeah, um, I hope so. I mean, like you, I think that that experience of being on campus is just as important as, as the academic progress that's made in, in the summer that you, you feel comfortable on a college campus. You feel like you know somebody in, in your peers and you, you feel like you have a connection with the faculty or the staff or even the, the administration. Um, I hope with this this new, new program we're going to try over the summer between freshman and sophomore year, um, it will help students realize how close they are to achieving their goals. So making sure that they, that there's some markers that they can hit in terms of completing you know, 24 or 30 credit hours in that first year and that if they can get a little extra work, but also help them make that transition so they don't drift away and say, you know, I didn't do quite as well as I wanted to. I'm just going to work a little bit more. I'm, I'm going to pick up a second job and, and, and I'll be fine and I'll come back to school when I'm ready. Um, we know that often doesn't happen. So uh, I'm excited about that. I hope it can be a change, uh, game changer that it will help um, increase that connection. It will help uh, make students feel uh, more confident about returning to the classroom, that they do have the ability to succeed, that they've got um, the connections and the resources that they need. And, um, you know, they're just going to take a little extra time to do so. And, and summer is a great opportunity for, for that. I mean, if I was a student listening to this episode of the podcast, I would take away so many resources available, ask for help, right? Uh, but I would also say you can help students in the fact that we hear consistently that professors are terrifying and unapproachable. So as a former faculty member, help students think through what's the right approach? When do you approach a professor? Walk them through that. Yeah. So I would say one, I would say uh, I 100% understand that fear. I mean, I remember sitting outside my professor's door uh, at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, terrified to knock on the door. I mean, I would kind of peek through the blinds and see if they're in there, they were working on something or so I, I completely understand that that fear. But what I want students to know is that the people that work at the state's community and technical colleges, they work there because they care about students and helping students and helping students in their in their learning. So while they're posted office hours and those are a great place to start, I actually saw an institution that thought about changing those to student hours, which I think is something oh, we I like that. consider because it sort of flips the, so it's not the implication that, hey, I'm working in my office and if you interrupt your, you know, if you stop by, you're going to interrupt. It's, hey, these are hours that are set aside for students and please stop by during that time period because one of the things that frustrated me as a faculty member is I would have these hours and nobody would show up. So. I don't think anyone ever visited <laughs> <laughs> so hour. I encourage students to, 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 to say, you know, one, if you want to make a connection before or after class and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm struggling or I've got I need your advice about something. Can I stop by and, and just build that that connection and that relationship? Because I think it's critically important. It's one of the things that I try to do a faculty member. I still try to do it as a as a president um, is offer support and help where where I can. And that starts with having a relationship um, um, uh, around the discipline and around the subject material. But I mean, those are people that are going to write recommendations of letter, re- letters for you when you're transfer or can help you make a connection with the job market or uh, any sorts of things. So I think those, those relationships are, are critically important. And I know it's intimidating, but they're just regular, ordinary, everyday people. They go to the grocery store and have their oil changed in their, in their cars, just like, uh, just like you and me and the, and the student population. Um, and they're there because they want to help. They want to see students succeed. So um, I always told my students, 
when I was teaching this and I tell, you know, ask for help before it's too late. Um, you know, if, if you struggle on that first test or quiz, go in and ask for help at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think it's always prompted, right, by something like semi-terrible happening on uh, an assignment. I remember as a first-gen kid at Swanee, my first paper, I mean, I graduated top of my class from my high school, felt pretty good about myself, and my first paper back, it said at the top, I didn't get a grade, it just said, have you ever written a paper before? And I was like, oh, dang, right? So I remember like going to office hours and like tapping on the door and walking in and in like a squeaky voice said like, Maybe not. Maybe I've actually never written a paper, but it is always sort of prompted by some yeah, sort of disaster yeah. crisis, right? And I think if students would understand in the beginning, like start to build that relationship. So when life does happen, the professor knows you and knows you're working hard and knows you're trying to navigate something that might be the first journey in your family. And I think that's really important for our students to understand. Okay, so anything we didn't talk about that you wanna talk about? Uh, I don't think so. I think we're headed for another record year in terms of number of graduates at, at, at Pellissippi State. I think one of the things that's, that's different this year is we're seeing that first wave of ReConnect students. You know, We did that a little bit earlier than, than folks, so uh, I think we're seeing that first real strong wave of, of ReConnect students. So um, I think we're gonna have our largest winter commencement ever uh, here in a couple of weeks. And uh, I mean, it's a great way to end, uh, uh, end up the, uh, the year, December 13th at Thompson Bowling and uh, look forward to shaking hands and passing out scrolls and celebrating success with students and their families. It really, uh, graduation ceremonies are so fun. I'm also teasing about the statistics. We're just thankful to be a partner in the work. Okay, so we are trying to end all the podcasts on like a light note, a relatable note. Um, and I tried this with Ben, um, but we're going to change it up a little bit. So your favorite class you ever took. And by the way, I was Ben's professor and he did not say mine. Ooh, which ouch. Was, I know. Ouch, it, was, ouch. it was hurtful. Yeah, I can see that. So, um... You know, I had several classes by, from a gentleman by name, uh, Philip Racine at Wofford College. Um, and probably one of the, we had a number of memorable things that happened in his classes, but I was not a good high school student like you. In fact, I did so poorly in the second semester of my senior year, I fully expected Wofford to rescind my admission um, when they got my final transcript. Uh, I just got over the, the finish line and I, you know, share that. So, but I had a professor, Philip Racine, who, uh, I had him for Western Civ in the, I think the fall semester of my sophomore year, and I still had not really figured out uh, college yet. I mean, I was doing okay, but you know, I was making A's and pep band and D's in French, and had a lot of grades in, in between there. Um, but he wrote something on one of my, my the first history exam that fall, and he said, you know. There's some, there's some potential in here, um, uh, and I think I still have that blue book. It had a profound impact on me. It was the first time I felt like somebody at the institution kind of recognized the fact that, that maybe there, there was something there, even though I wasn't a great student, um, and that really was a turning point academically for me. So I took him for just about everything he offered uh, from that point forward. He became a mentor to me. Um, when I decided I wasn't going to go into the business world, he kind of talked me through what the path, what it mean like to go to graduate school in history. And he was very open about the, uh, the possibility of finding work as, as a historian. So, but that was really a pivotal turning point for me. I love the way he taught and I'm sure I carried that into how I taught when I was uh, in the, in the classroom, but that just the impact of that com comment 
you know, changed my life. That's huge, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. that really is huge. He didn't have to say anything. He could have said, well, this is a, you know, this is a B exam. But he said, you know what? This is a B exam, but you do some things really well. And if you can build on that, I can see how you can become a good student. And that, that, that changed story. my life. Okay. Second question. If you could have coffee with anyone, who would it be? Uh, this, is a, this is a tough one. So, but I chose Malcolm Gladwell. Because um, okay. oh, I listen yeah. to a lot of podcasts and I've read a couple of his things. But, um, you know, we, we've had conversations around data and, I just like the way that he can can take a data point that we think we all sort of understand in terms of you know talent or time or practice or those things that are sort of part of language we use all the time and kind of turn them on their head. So I just like to have a conversation about how he gets sort of insights into to how he sees in, into the world and the ways he uses uh, data structures to build understanding around that and then how he communicates about, about that. And he handles a lot of topics. Um, uh, that are historically interesting to me and, and, of course, current sociological issues as well. So I think he'd be a pretty, pretty interesting person to have a cup of coffee. Yeah, I, I love the way he uses data to tell stories, yeah. right? I mean, I think it's great to have the data, but if it's not telling a story that you can connect to, it's yeah. just a data point. It's 100%. And so... Um, when I was teaching, I, I considered myself sort of a narrative historian. So, yes, it's important to be able to have these these facts and these data structures and understand, uh, you know, events like elections. But ultimately, they have to be part of a larger story. They have, we have to understand them as part of a larger shared history if they're going to mean anything to us as a, as a citizens or as a community. So this might be a theme, but favorite book? Favorite book. Uh, so if you asked my kids, they would say I, I like these sort of old sappy books about dogs like Old Yeller and Where the Red Fern Grows. Oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> that book. I cried in third yes. grade and everyone made fun of me. Uh, yeah, that book is so good. So those are a couple from 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 my childhood. Um, nothing in part because although I grew up in the in the suburbs, both my parents came from rural North Carolina. So there were kind of connections to to their past and, and things that that really my kids have no connection to now at all based on the fact, you know, that we're another generation kind of removed, removed from that. But that just that notion of sort of the rural path and the relationship that folks had with, with the land and the animals that lived on that land uh, with them. And, of course, the, the emotionally jarring <laughs> scenes that, that are part of both of those Why is it worse stories. when a dog dies? Uh, it is. It's about the worst, worst thing possible. But my kids give me such a hard time about... Uh, uh, about liking this because they just don't have any sort of uh, sense of relationship to that. But those are, you know, a, a couple from from memory of, um, you know, and, and another one sort of To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, read it first in high school and reread it f frequently and, um, you know, try to think about the way it, it's it's shaped our understanding of the world and the work that we still have to do if we're going to uh, find uh, ourselves in a, a community, in a state, in a country that's really based upon uh, equality and equity for, for all who, who live. So timeless, yeah. right? You can read it every yeah. year and yeah. pick up something from it. And for a time, it, when I started at Pellissippi State, we had a faculty member who grew up with Harper Lee, and she would tell these stories. Really? So, yes, it was it was wild. <laughs> so we had kind of like a one-step one step Kevin Bacon thing. Uh, with, <laughs> you uh, know with Harper, Harper Lee. Lee. I knew somebody who knew Harper Lee, anyway, <laughs> which I thought was pretty cool. Uh. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for coming. This has been super fun. Uh, as always, I'm thankful for your partnership and your friendship and look forward to 10 more years. Of yeah, absolutely. Doing what's right by students. That's, uh, that's what it's all about. Always great to catch up and uh, always great to be with you.